0: Welcome back for another episode of Cleantech Talk, where we at Cleantechnica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our
1: website at cleantechnica.com.
2: We are here for another episode of Cleantech Round Talk, a special series on cleantech tech talk where Joe Boris, Steve Hanley, and perhaps other people in the future get around the table to talk about the latest clean tech, especially electric vehicle, news. This week, the topic of the day is clearly the Inflation Reduction Act of 2020. Sorry, 2022. 2022.
0: Yep. <laughs> 2020. We're doing a great job here already.
2: <laughs> yes. And in particular, the EV, or the yeah, as they've renamed it, the Clean Vehicle Credit, EV tax credit, and we're going to talk talk about a couple of elements of the tax credit that have been a bit confusing or controversial and try to get all angles of the story on these so the two core topics we're going to talk about are the EV battery mineral requirements and the dealer requirement for for basically making the the credit available to consumers immediately on purchase or lease. Right. So
0: it's it's essentially the the immediate a- activation of the tax credit instead of waiting till April 15th or whatever the following year you can apply it immediately at the point of sale whatever you think you're going to qualify for and then reduce the price of the vehicle by that amount. The Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 has passed the Senate. And it passed the Senate with certain language in it and this and that. But now it has to pass Congress. And Congress is going to have its own amendments. They're going to have their own changes to it. And then it's got to go into reconciliation. So a lot of these details might still change.
2: Yes, I think that's critical. The House of Representatives led by Pelosi is for sure going to get it to Biden's desk. I think nobody really doubts that. It's a lot of faith in Pelosi, one of the most powerful, influential, persuasive heads of the House of Representatives, I think the Democrats have ever had. And the question is how much they might change based on feedback they're getting or we're writing or uh, lobbyists are putting in their ear. But, you know, this is sort of, these elements have sort of been hashed out for the past couple of years. And I, I'm not anticipating big changes, but we'll see. We don't know yet. And of course, uh, then Biden has to sign it, which he will do. So I think, yeah, everything is with a grain of salt. We're going to publish this ASAP so that we're, you know, if anything changes, we're not behind the news. But the first element let's we'll deal with, and then we'll come to the dealer one, is the the battery minerals. So I just published an article right before we started recording about this matter that this is sort of the most controversial and hardest part of the clean vehicle tax credit, but it's also potentially the best. I'm just going to do a short intro before I come back to sort of my my take on it. But the point is that starting January 1st, 2024, according to the language as we understand it, if an EV battery has any critical minerals, and this is like a list of like 40 minerals or more nickel, lithium, cobalt, graphite, any of them coming from China, which doesn't mean necessarily mined there, but processed and refined there, then that EV will not be eligible for the tax credit. It gets excluded. And I mean, this really might be one of the things that would be most likely to get changed or modified a bit in the house. We'll see. But the problem with that for is that, you know, basically right now, China has a near monopoly or monopoly on the Processing and refining of many of minerals that go into an EV battery, using a, a chart from from Benchmark Mineral Intelligence, China is processes or refines sixty eight percent of the world's nickel, seventy three percent of the world's cobalt, hundred percent of the world's graphite, synthetic graphite, and fifty nine percent of the world's lithium. So, good luck getting an EV battery that doesn't have battery minerals out of China in it. The timeline is, you know, as, as stated, this comes into effect January 1st, 2024. So there's a year and a half for EV automakers and battery companies to get their act together and, you know, produce batteries that don't come anywhere near China or other places like Russia, other places that are deemed, what's the, what's the term? No bueno. <laughs> a foreign entity of concern. <laughs> so this <Lovely>. is, <laughs> this is the intro. I'll let you guys chime in on what you think about this before, uh, you know, I put more of my. Yeah,
0: well, in. I think the first thing that needs to be said here is that this doesn't necessarily mean that we're not going to have EVs that have batteries that are not made in China or Russia or anything like that. This just means that if you have an EV whose battery is made in China, you will not be eligible for the full tax credit. And that that's kind of a nuanced thing to say, right? that's the question because like it, it really does have it really does kind of you know beg that question of like let's say you're Rivian, right? And one of the one of the new clauses in this new bill is that you will not get a tax credit if the vehicle is priced at over $80,000, right? So if you're buying a Rivian R1S and it's got this huge battery pack, you're already not getting a tax credit because it costs too much. It's it's like a $95,000 truck. So you're not getting the tax credit anyway. So if that thing has a battery that's made in China or made by Russia, it's not going to affect the the purchase price or the tax credit at all because it's already disqualified, right?
2: Yes, correct. And we also, but- I mean, there was a stage where I think there was like a reduced tax credit for, I mean, you know, th- there's been many drafts of this kind of legislation. So there's a possibility there could be a reduced tax credit for EVs with batteries that have minerals from China, but yeah, we don't, we don't know yet. Steve, what do you think?
1: Well, there's, you know, there's funny things happen when they pass legislation like this. Everybody wants to throw a little seasoning into the soup and, and get what they want. Somebody left a comment on one of the stories that I did recently. There's a $40,000 credit for a heavy-duty truck that weighs more than 14,000 pounds well the Hummer already weighs 9,826 pounds I mean how much how much more difficult would it be to add another 4,000 pounds of beef and qualify the thing for a $40,000 incentive
2: you're gonna make a double Hummer
1: (laughs)
0: well now listen this used to be a real thing international uh, is a trucking company that used to be affiliated with um, Navistar but international in the late nineties, early two thousands, they actually made a, what they call a medium duty, but it was a 14,000 pound heavy duty, essentially semi-truck. It was called the CXT and they made it with a pickup bed, but it was like, it was just meant to be that it was just meant to be the biggest, baddest, like, Oh, you have a Hummer like in the old days when a Hummer was a big diesel thing. And it was like, Oh, you have a Hummer. This is bigger, badder, dieselier than that Hummer. If you Google the thing, it's just international CXT. And it, it's very likely that they could just build something like that. And yeah, absolutely right, Steve. So then the, the real question then becomes, you know, is there a, is there going to be a market for that? If you, if you had something like that, like a, like a, you know, full size, heavy duty pickup truck, right. And it cost 130,000 versus an $80,000, you know, optioned up, gussied up Ford F-150 Lightning. And now all of a sudden you have a $40,000 tax credit on that because of the weight. Now they're the same price. So now which one do you buy?
2: Yeah. And uh, this is actually, I mean, the, this sort of gets to the core point of the, of the legislation is that it's going to shape the market, you know? So this is going to, in some ways, known and unknown shape the market. And one of the sort of, uh, I guess, conspiracies or controversies out there that some people are discussing <laughs> is that this is all for the fossil fuel industry because no one will be eligible for a full EV. And part of that also argument is that plug-in hybrids with small batteries could more easily get their minerals from outside of China and then could qualify for EV tax credits that full EVs don't qualify for. And then you get a lot of people buying plug-in hybrids and running them on gas. Uh, So this is a kind of... Uh, an argument out there i guess you could call it and i don't know what do you guys think about what do you think about that
1: <laughs> i'm well, curious I think I, I think I read today that the battery size for a plug-in hybrid only has to be seven kilowatt hours which is that's correct tiny so um yeah this could this could uh shift the balance between the uh, I mean, plug-in hybrids were were kind of disappearing and now they could get a big boost because they'll be eligible with a tiny little battery they'll be eligible for a seven thousand five hundred dollar credit
2: and it might be hard might be hard to get enough good clean green lithium or cobalt or or graphite for a 70 kilowatt hour battery but you could get 10 you know seven kilowatt hour battery it'd be easier to get enough for a bunch of cars
1: right Yeah. But is this
0: a question of, you know, sacrificing the the good for the sake of the perfect as uh, as Scott Cooney, our illustrious leader, always says, you know, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Like what we want to see, obviously, what we want to see is everybody switches to electric vehicles and they're all running battery electrics and we don't have any tailpipe emissions at all. But if, you know, all of a sudden we create, you know, even with all of the incentives and everything else that have existed up to now. EVs, battery electric vehicles in the U.S. are still a very small percentage of the overall market. Wouldn't having a much larger percentage of plug-in hybrid vehicles that are using that EV battery for all of the around town trips or most of the around town trips and dramatically reducing tailpipe emissions throughout the country, wouldn't that be an improvement that we could celebrate? Or are we just going to say, like,
1: that's not what we wanted. We don't like it. No, that would be an improvement, assuming that people actually plug them in. And I think that's a fair
0: comment, right? Assuming that people plug them in. But I mean, I had the uh, I had the Lexus RX450H, which is the, uh, the V6 hybrid. I had that as a demo car a couple of weeks ago. And that was not a plug-in hybrid, but it did have an EV mode. And there were several trips to the grocery store to pick up the kids from summer camp that I never used the internal combustion engine. I was just on EV and that's from a hybrid that doesn't even have a plug. So I wonder if it's not still an improvement, if it's not still good again, it could always be better, right? It could always be not a car at all. It could be a bicycle instead of an electric car and we'd be a 10,000 times better off, but it's still something good. Right. Or am I, am I just being
1: naive? I guess. Yeah. I, I see a possibility that Chevrolet might, uh, put the, the Volt back in production.
2: Yes, I would say, you know, this is a debate that is v- gets very heated quickly but can run for approximately infinity. Like we've had people arguing over this for as long as I remember. And anytime it comes up, it, it's, it stirs up more argument. I I think it's worthy of a whole podcast. We could get Lauren McDonald on here and talk about it. But I think basically, I mean, there's there's a couple of factors here. I mean, one is... People don't drive nearly as much as they think. I used to promote bicycling, I had director of a nonprofit that promoted bicycling and sustainable development. And it's it's pretty ridiculous how much more we think we drive than we do. And there's a lot of potential with plug-in hybrids to do most, almost all of your driving on electric and you know, use fewer battery minerals that can be then spread to more. EVs or PHEVs. So I think that's a strong argument. There's been studies that show people don't plug them in. I think that depends a lot on the incentives. If if they're paid, uh, if their gas is paid for by the company and their electricity isn't, then they're probably going to take the free gas. But I think, especially in the U.S., where so many people live in detached houses and have a place to easily plug in at home, it seems like plug-in hybrids could still be very useful. And I'm sure you talk to people all the time who are. Who are reticent to go full electric. And you know, there's a huge portion of the market that uses that stepping stone or could use that stepping stone of having a plug-in hybrid. So yeah, I would the lily pad
0: car. They hop into the lily, you know, they hop onto the lily pad and they look around and they go, Oh, I haven't put gas in my car for six months. Maybe I could use an electric car. And then they go into the BEV.
2: Yeah, the only issue, and you guys can chime in on this, I, I think seven kilowatt hours is really a bit small. Like this is a really tiny battery and they should have had a, a higher minimum in my opinion.
0: What do we well, think we'll get there, out of a range of a seven kilowatt hour battery? About 12 miles. I mean, for me, honestly, like living in Chicago, I would never use the internal combustion car with, you know, engine with 12 miles. Like that would that, that would do- But that's 90% of my driving. 100%. That's that's 100%. 100%, I think 40
2: miles a day is average. So I think it would be, you know, I I feel like it should be at least a 15 kilowatt hour or 20 kilowatt hour battery. Then you get a real legitimate, you know, um, EV that has a gas backup instead of a gas car with a little bit of electric range. Uh, But yeah, we'll come to that another time. I think we can move on from that topic unless anyone wants to chime in any more about oh well so just on the battery you know mineral front i mean i just i think this is absolutely critical if you think 10 years out we don't want to be reliant on 60 to 100 percent of ev battery minerals coming from china we want to have a robust industry we want to have a secure supply chain we don't want to be under someone's big thumb and i think you know this is really critical legislation to say hey market move like this, like, you can't just be electric, you can't just, you know, go electric, you have to get battery minerals from the US or free market partners, like you have to do this. And I think that's gonna what I mean, the biggest challenge I've seen for the past few years is just getting the investment in mines, especially in the West, to produce these minerals and, and refine them. So I think this is really like the best, most important legislation we could have in the industry, aside from mandating a certain you know like the automaker switch like europe did and and led to you know 20 yeah. plus percent ev market share but steve we were talking a little bit before the call about you know the broader you know economic global trends and you you have some good points as well on this topic
1: well a couple of things zach first of all we hear in the comments to our articles all the time why do you people always talk about politics we don't want to hear about politics well there's no way that you can talk about addressing an overheating planet without including politics. It may not be the only here, here. About, Well said. But it's, it's really, really important. Now we have the federal government. I'm in the middle of writing an article about how this bill, and this is a little bit off track, incentivize research into sustainable aviation fuel. Well, we know someday airplanes are going to run on hydrogen and batteries and so forth, but that someday is, that's well on the on the far horizon someplace. And in the meantime, this bill could significantly impact the amount of carbon emissions that come from the airline industry and, and private, uh, private aircraft. So politics is hugely important. Those of us who remember back to the 70s and 80s when we thought Japan was going to own the world, Uh, there was this intimate connection between industry in Japan and the Japanese government, to the point where people called it Japan Inc. Because there was so much interrelationship between the the corporations and the government that uh, it was hard to tell one from the other. We haven't had that uh, to a large extent in, in the U.S. for a while. We've been content to let others do the heavy lifting. And I think that this is a wake-up call, that we're going to have to onshore everything or most of the things that we offshored over the last 30 years. It's going to be interesting, too, because I've read a lot of articles
0: about you know, the the carbon emissions of China, the carbon emissions of India. And there was an Indian politician that spoke to parliament, and he made a comment about You know, the West always likes to point its finger at India and China, but the West moved all of its manufacturing to India and China. And now that there's this rise of nationalism and this kind of populist movement to bring manufacturing jobs back to the West, once that happens, our carbon emissions are going to start climbing up as well as they relate to manufacturing. So it's going to be interesting to see how much of this actually is beneficial, you know, by the end of it all
2: and what steve was saying before the call to you know basically that this trend toward more and more corporate globalization and and offshoring uh over the past few decades we're sort of we're hitting this kind of you know rebound effect or reversal effect i don't know steve you, you can talk about a little bit more i know you're just talking about it leading into it basically but maybe a little bit more about that that shift and and what's going on now
1: for the last 30 years we have uh espoused globalization, free trade, and neoliberal economic theory. And uh, basically what we're finding as a result of COVID and as a result of the Ukraine, and as a result of China, uh, getting tiffy about people visiting Taiwan is that, the, uh, the world is not the, the unified marketplace that we thought it was, it really hasn't changed that much. And we have left ourselves dangerously vulnerable to people who may not have our best interests at heart. Yeah, that's very well said. What do you
0: think is going to happen with all of these tariffs? And and maybe not a tariff, but if you have an incentive on an American battery and not a subsidy on a Chinese battery, that it's just as well as having a tariff on the Chinese battery What do you think that's going to mean for these Chinese automakers who have ambitions to bring their products to market in the U.S.? Do you think this is going to slow them down or hurt them in any way? Or do you think they just have such a tremendous advantage in material processing as it is that they're still going to be
1: able to churn out product at a competitive price? Well, that's a really good question. My My gut instinct is that Americans don't want to buy Chinese cars, even though there are several cars that are sold in the US market today that are manufactured in China. But no one knows that it's a very closely guarded secret. And uh, on the other side of the coin, uh, people in China are not all that interested in buying cars from foreign countries. They like Chinese made cars. So I'm not sure that the Uh, The Chinese companies are going to find the welcome mat out the way uh, Japan and South Korea did when their uh, car industries uh, came to the U.S. But it's a pricing thing, too, right? When
0: you look at the average transaction price of a new car in the United States as of last quarter, crept over $48,000, and you have a viable Chinese product from, you know, NEMA or from BYD that sells for, really well under 30 grand, and there's nothing in the domestic market, whether it's from Tesla or Chevy or anyone else that's on that level and on that price tag, it, it seems like they might welcome it. I mean, I remember a time when we used to walk into a Walmart and their whole marketing campaign was that everything there was made in the USA. And I think what they found was that people are willing to buy from anywhere in the world as long as the price is right. I, th- I think the
1: answer to your question which is which is a good one, Joe, is one word. Yugo. Uh, I think that was different, man. I, I don't know. like I,
0: I think that there's a lot of quality products being made in China and there will always be people who won't buy it because it's Chinese. But like the Yugo was an Eastern European knockoff of a Fiat 126 and the Fiat was terrible. So we had like a copy of a copy already. So I, I'm not sure that's
1: I'm not sure that's apples to apples there. Oh I, it might be I, apples to lemons. <laughs> I was just just pointing out that it was at one time the cheapest car you could buy in America and they couldn't they couldn't make enough of them. Oh yeah,
0: that's fair. I don't actually remember how well they sold. <laughs> I mean, but I think you're right. They were selling, were they selling well? I mean, you would remember better than I would, but I think what they kept building
1: cars until the factory got bombed, right? Uh, yeah, they they sold extremely well. The other the other car that sold extremely well was the uh, Hyundai XL, which was just a dreadful vehicle. But <laughs> <laughs> well, it almost as bad as a Renault Alliance, although not quite that bad. But oh, I had a I had a Renault Five, the Le Car. Well, the Five was a fine car. I don't well, I mean, as long as you had a fire extinguisher, it was okay the alliance i have owned about 64 cars in my lifetime the Renault alliance was without question the worst oh
0: yeah they brought those into the they brought those into the u.s as the eagle medallion and my mom had one and i think she had it for like two years and it was just horrendous it had this like this like brown velour interior that was like the like the thermos level plastic oh my god i, I can't say
1: enough terrible things about that car. Very classy but my, oh. my, my my point is the same as yours joe if it's cheap enough you're going to find a lot of people that will buy it i was gonna right? say, but i, I think if we, if we uh get into another cold war situation where it's this time, the U.S. and China in a Cold War instead of the U.S. and Russia. I think there's a significant number of people who are going to say, I don't care if it's free. I'm not going to buy it. All I was
2: right. going to say, oh, oh, hello, weeds. You're <laughs> <We're laughs> deep in the weeds. Oh, hi, weeds.
0: Where are you? How are you? The tip. The t- um, the objective terribleness of the Renault Alliance is always a relevant factor <laughs> in conversations about I, electric vehicles.
2: I was just immediately thinking if he if Steve owns sixty four cars, knowing Steve, depending on the topic we're talking about, he might pick a uh, uh, several of them to be the absolute worst <laughs> car. <laughs> like depending on the topic, I might say no, they doubt, can't
0: all be Renault Fuegos, man. <laughs> yeah, I don't know,
2: but yeah, so on your question of the chinese company i mean this is actually one of the most yeah interesting quite i think i have a very open mind very curious mind about this because uh, you know they have their they they're offering competitiveness for the value you know cost for the value too it's not like they're only producing cheap models which you know definitely there are some of those but they're also leading in sort of a smart EV kind of ways. So I think uh, it's something to be seen. But I, but it, it's very clear that this legislation will not help them. <laughs> this is definitely um, not good legislation for their interests in entering the U.S. market. Yeah. That said, they also are much more. Well, I mean, they're starting in Europe because Europe has a much bigger market. Uh, so that's where they're starting with their expansion plans. Whether that's Neo, Xpeng, or BOID, they're all going there first but yeah we'll see what that means for for potential getting going into the into the u.s so i think you know that that sort of covers the batteries we will see more when when more legislation comes out we have a second part of this topic and i think we will make that a second episode so that we can focus on each of them individually so check in in a in a short time for part two
0: Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A C C O U N T S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks
2: yeah yeah yeah